Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Mark Stoos. He's the CEO of Proof Analytics. We're going to be looking at some really, really important factors. We're going to be looking at trust, awareness, confidence, why they are more important as currency now than ever. We're going to look at how you build them, how you lose them. And we're going to look at their direct impact on things like cash flow, deal velocity, customer confidence. We're going to be looking at how you apply these things in order to deliver expansion sales. In this market, if you're not focusing on expansion, you are giving away vast amounts of profit and you're incurring needless cost. Vanity is the new business focus. If you want to keep some money that you get to spend and maybe maybe invest in your kids' futures, you want to get into expansion sales. So without any further ado, Mark Stoos, welcome. Hey, terrific to be here with you. Excellent. So Mark, would you mind giving us 60 to 90 seconds on your history, please? I'm a lot of things, but but probably in the last 20 years or so, I am a large company CMO and chief commercial officer who has become a software, analytics software CEO. And I am a analytics fanatic. About uh, almost 20 years ago, working for Mark Hurd at HP, I just said, wow, there's got to be a better way. And sure enough, there, there was. The issue wasn't just how to get more credit for what I and my teams were doing, but to actually be able to understand it in a multivariable context and change it when necessary, optimize it all the time understanding that the world is a changing place, right? And so, I mean, I use the analogy of the GPS, right, all the time. Just because the route that you chose to the restaurant was good when you started does not mean that it will stay that way all the way to the end of the journey. And you'll have to maybe get a rerouting idea from the GPS in terms of fixing the situation. That's life, that's business, that's that's really you know, a key part of the way that I've been running my own career as a leader for a long time. So tell me a bit about what Proof Analytics does, because um, obviously AI is the thing at the moment, but what you appear to be doing seems to be uh, a more intelligent application of it rather than just simply using the brute force. Yeah, I mean, if we look at analytics in general, not not just marketing or go-to-market, but but overall The big challenge for decades has been operationalizing analytics at the clock speed of the business. Put it more conversationally, most business leaders would tell you that data science teams are a day late and a dollar short in terms of the insights they bring to the table. That they, you know, the decision's already been made and all of a sudden, you know, two months later, they show up with some input and everybody kind of goes, wow, that would have really been nice to know that three months ago. <laughs> when we needed it. That's a huge issue. I mean, it's a huge issue. Data science is a high latency, high precision, high accuracy endeavor attempting to exist in a low latency, ultra pragmatic environment known as business. And the two don't mesh under normal circumstances. So you have to figure, and you're not gonna change business. Business is the denominator in the whole thing, right? So 
what we ultimately figured out was that we had to automate a lot of the analytics. We had to, to get that, that latency way, way down there where, again, it would operate like a GPS. And also, the whole modeling process became less waterfall, more agile. If you think about, if you kind of extrapolate the idea and software of the minimum viable product, into analytics, we're now talking about the minimum viable model. It's all about scalability, agility, understandability. So this is a, this last piece. You know, understandability is a huge component. Most uh, most business teams look at normal data science output and go, "What the hell is that?" But, but right. we're, we're collecting so much data and we have no idea what to do with that. I was at dinner with Forrester yeah. a couple of years back. The head of the data sciences team said that maybe 7% of companies were using big data well, but the majority were just collecting the data and just cre- uh, using it to churn out points. Yeah, and, and, I'll, and I'll even say this, uh, I'll go one step further. Big data is not this is a as a concept does not mean a lot of data, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Most companies, the data that they have, they have a large amount of lean data. So these are data sets, time series data sets that are typically pretty small. And so the idea that big data solutions are going to somehow be revolutionizing business when the business doesn't have anywhere near the training data that's required to make those mm-hmm. things run is crazy, right? It also, we're talking about, you know, you get into machine learning and things like that, pattern matching, things of that nature. This is not causality. It's really important stuff. But a pattern can be causal or non-causal, right? And so at the end of the day, what what really happens is that you start using those kinds of things as part of a discovery process to ultimately create a causal model. Now it's probabilistic stuff, right? There is, unless you're God, you don't know everything about everything. And so you're not, you're not going to be, you're not going to be able to do a deterministic output. This is interesting because this ties into something I was listening to on one of my books. Okay, so um, one of the most revelatory revelatory, um, uh, insights I've had recently um, is that actually everything that we know about the world is just a model. Our language is a model of expression. um, The way we perceive the world, all of these things are just models. And most of my work appears to be around uh, helping people to try and navigate through wicked problems and work out which bits are um, interconnected and focus on the stuff you can control and stop faffing around with the stuff you can't. And more often than not, I see these wicked problems occur because people do not spend enough time in thought and reflection, and they just go out and they start throwing money and people and bodies and time at problems uh, without any coordination. Now, I would be really interested in understanding how you're using data in order to create, help create a joined up experience for both buyers and everyone in the business to make sure that they're all working towards common purpose. Because the waste that 
I see every day is it's offensive. I really very much agree with you. So multivariable regression as a mathematical construct and an approach. Imagine I'm quite a clever eight-year-old. <laughs> it's been around a long time, right? I mean, <laughs> part of the algorithm for mainstream regression was written by Aristotle. Right. Okay, fair enough. That's quite so, an old algorithm then. This is not a new idea, right? And the issue is not the math nor the data for the most part. I mean, data is always an issue, but that is not the issue. The issue is the speed, the latency, the understandability of analytics and making it real for people so that they can actually make a better decision than they otherwise would have made. This becomes really important if you're making regular the same decision over and over and over again and you're seeking to make it better every time. So what you're striving for there is you want to activate the law of compounding. Okay. Right? So if you, if you're, let's just, I mean, exaggerate for effect. You're making a business decision every day of the year and you need to make it a half a point better every time. Not a lot. That's not a lot of improvement on a daily basis. But over the course of the year, it's only 300%. Well, it's actually closer to 2,000% at the end of the year, right? Well, okay. Well, I was missing out weekends and holidays. Sorry. So, so I mean, it, it's a, it, is, it, it really compounds. And so, yeah, they're not, they're not thinking it through. They also are not understanding that life and thus business is a series of numerator and denominator relationships. And the denominators rarely change, right? And so what you, okay. so you were talking about not worrying about the stuff that you don't control. I would, I would word that differently, right? Okay. The, the stuff that you don't control is the wave that you are seeking to surf. Right. Right. So you can't worry about it from the standpoint of trying to alter the wave, but you absolutely, if you're going to successfully surf the wave and end up on the beach with a flourish as opposed to wiping out, <laughs> right, you have to build in feedback loops to be able to understand and anticipate what the wave under your feet is doing and make the right choices. And so in that sense, it's usually about a two-thirds, one-third mix. So about Two-thirds of what matters in any given model are externalities. These are headwinds, tailwinds. These are things that you don't control. And one-third is what are you doing to try and attain your goal in the context of all the stuff you don't control? And right now, I mean, the three Vs are all over the place. You have the variety of change the volatility of change, the velocity of change. It's brutal. I mean, there's a lot of historical analogs to this. If you're not using analytics, you are fundamentally behind. You are just behind. You and I were talking about people who are losing a lot of employees. They're having to hire new employees. And they're, they don't even know what the right mix of employees and skill sets really is 
for the future. So they're doing it based on, you know, what was good five years ago, 10 years ago. I'm really interested in the connection between values and psychographics as well. Yeah. Um, Because I had David Allison on a couple of times and from value graphics and found his work really fascinating. But um, in uh, all the companies where there are uh, shared values and they recruit for those values and they look for diversity and everything else, um, I've seen those teams become incredibly profitable very fast because they are open to conflict uh, of the constructive variety. They seek diversity of thought and they go looking for bad news. They understand that the customer is the reason we exist. We don't exist in spite of them. We exist because of them. And employees are genuinely our most important asset because they're the buggers that have to go out there and meet our other most important asset, which is our customers. But we seem to put them somewhere um, you know, on the back burner as, an, as a forgotten afterthought. So talk to me about how values play a part in uh, helping people make good decisions. So I'll, I'll, I'm going to do that by offering you a couple of illustrations. Please. Oh, good. So marketing automation. Yes. <laughs> okay. from, a, from a purely operational or economic perspective, I think everybody gets why you want to try and do more with less, right? I mean, that's not, it's not, not difficult. Um, the same impulse is, it's exactly the same impulse that we're seeing with AI. AI, absolutely. Okay. But the more that you either depersonalize your interactions with your customers or fake personalize them, <laughs> the more corrosive that is on confidence and trust. Right. So they're playing the awareness card at the expense of confidence and trust. Right. right. And 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 you're and and also the I want to I'm perfectly happy. What you're really saying is I'm perfectly happy to have a one night stand with you as opposed to dating seriously and getting married. Yeah. Right. And so what is an what is a one night stand? It is exploitation, right? And so that's what, it, when people feel exploited and deceived, right, this is extremely bad for all kinds of confidence and trust, right? It, it, the, the societal corrosion that takes place yeah. is severe. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, uh, when we look at it analytically, the three main psychographics, uh, would be awareness, confidence, and trust. All of them have very high relationships, statistically speaking, with revenue margin and cash flow, for example. Or if you want to drop down one level, right, the number of deals. So more deals, bigger deals, faster deals, right? The relationship is very high. The one that is off the freaking charts company after company after company is the relationship between trust and average deal velocity. Talk to me about that data. So when you have a customer that that has real concerns about their risk, or in particularly in that area, what are they going to do? They are going to slow down and they are going to do more due diligence. Yep. 
right? And unfortunately, the more due diligence that is done on <laughs> almost any of us, right, <laughs> is generally not going to be helpful, right? No. So this is why salespeople know that the longer it takes to close a deal, the more unlikely time, it is. Time kills deals. Right. Okay. Same thing with, with deal, uh, deal size, deal expansion, right? Let's deal with a yeah, uh, deal velocity issue where organizations have created a culture that is buyer-centric and where their salespeople engender trust in the buyer. What is the difference in deal velocity compared with your average organization that doesn't focus on that? It's highly situational, but I'll tell you a story from my last large in-house gig, which was a CMO of Honeywell Aerospace. Yep. So total revenue for aerospace at that time was right around 11 or $12 billion a year. It was already doing business with everybody who mattered in the aerospace industry. So kind of like traditional understandings of new opportunities, MQL, new logo, right? That, that was not really the main driver. Certainly, new deal opportunities, but the uh, you know there wasn't really a new an idea of a new logo at that point. Profitability, op income was was a key thing, and then it, you know we had a situation where nobody believed because of the regulatory environment around aerospace that you could meaningfully improve average deal velocity, particularly in an industry that's so risk averse because. It's a life and death kind of industry, right? Yeah. You can't argue with the laws of physics. So we we started creating solution packs targeting specific industry problems and showing a lot of early traction with some key accounts on these things. And by early traction, you mean looking at the medium term rather than the short term? Yeah, without a doubt, because there is no short term in aerospace. <laughs> okay, well, longer term. Got yeah, that. yeah, yeah. And they, but they would, we also, most importantly, these early customers, right, for these solutions were willing to come out publicly at the right time uh, and, and say, yeah, you know what? This is really awesome. I mean, we've cut our, our uh, on the, you know, AOG aircraft on the ground time because an aircraft that's on the ground is not making money right so so we we've cut that by you know 20 percent or whatever it was and and so we we started to see systemic incremental improvements in average deal velocity to the point where after two years we we had we could show that we had improved average deal velocity on a broad basis for almost 5% of revenue, right? So we've gotten 5%, we, we've gotten all revenue moving 5% faster through the through the company or into the company. And the, the impact on cash flow must have been incredible. It's the number one reason why the former CFO of Honeywell Aerospace is a member of the proof board. Right? <laughs> I mean, um, I was his best friend after that. Right. I mean, it, he was, you know, it didn't really, the rest of the equation was sort of just like uh, lanyap, you know, extra stuff. Yeah. Right. 
the cash flow impact alone. So this is really encouraging for everybody or should be really encouraging because at the end of the day, this is also the commissionable piece if you're in sales. You know, you close a deal and you close a deal faster, right? Not only do you get paid, but if you're doing this systemically as an individual sales guy or a sales team, it means that you can handle more deals. You are becoming faster and faster at a, any given deal. So you're becoming more efficient and more effective, right? And you're also, because they're able to stack more deals into tenured sales reps, they're not hiring, having to hire new untenured unproductive sales reps. So over time, it drops the cost of sales significantly while still making everybody a lot of money. Okay. So this then... um, Almost as a trust. Well, this then feeds into the culture of the organization and the money behind it and who they choose to hire uh, to lead these businesses and how they measure and compensate them. And all of these things are interconnected. So I'd like to explore the kind of work that you're doing with your customers uh, to help them see the connections between sales, marketing, product, finance, operations, the customer. This stuff is, it should be bloody obvious, but apparently it's not. And so I'd like someone else to uh, rant about it instead of just me. (laughs) (laughs) No, so, I mean, actually part of our collective problem is that uh, we're looking at the better part of 60 years of crap math education in schools. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. And it's not quite as bad in Europe. So I personally think, I I can't really prove this, but a, a very significant portion of our revenue comes from Europe. And I don't think it's an accident. We see more maturity around this issue in many European EU companies and British companies than we see in the United States. So the key thing, there's a number of key principles here. These are kind of like analytical laws of gravity. Life is nonlinear and multivariable and time-lagged. There are certain things that happen in life and in business that are linear. Sales is a linear function. It creates value on a linear function. Meaning if you want to sell more stuff with a sales force, the CRO's number goes way up, right? Absent anything else, absent any kind of leverage, you're going to have to hire a whole bunch more sales guys. Mm -hmm. That's a linear function. Marketing, for example, creates value on a nonlinear asynchronous basis, right? So what does this mean? This means that uh, nonlinearity in this case is a a reference. It's a fancy word for leverage, Mm -hmm. right? So you don't have to hire more marketers to attain a quota. You just have to spend wisely and effectively. You might, under certain circumstances, if there are headwinds in the marketplace, including your 
your whatever your competitor is doing. You might have to increase marketing spend, right? But it's not a linear thing at all. There's three main areas in the average large company that are non-linear, massively non-linear in their contribution. Marketing is one. Enterprise IT is another. Talent overall is the third, mm -hmm. right? So what you're really, and then you have the external nonlinearities, right? So what and what is the economy doing? Mm -hmm. What are the actions of other people, including your competitors? What does that mean to this equation? So these models can get pretty significant in terms of the number of data sets involved, but they're not, for the most part, terribly complex models. Right. Mathematically, they're not terribly, right? So you're, so it's, it's uh, and particularly if you look at it all through the lens of what, of the needs of the business, right? As opposed to an academic research project for a data science team, right? The needs of the business are very simple when it comes to analytics. This is what we were talking about earlier. I need to make a better decision every day or every week or every month than I did before, right? And you are going to help me do that. But I don't need 95% certainty because most of my decisions in business, if they were modeled, would be in the 10s and 20s, yeah. okay? So <laughs> if you can get me in the 30s and 40s, this yeah. is like awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm better informed. Right. So... This is where the data science profession is starting to really see the light that they cannot bring their academic approach into this equation and be successful. Well, I interviewed Martin Lindstrom, and I really love his book, Small Data. This approach is really very, very interesting. And I've adopted quite a few of his ideas together with systems thinking, theory of constraint, jobs to be done, because we need to start, uh, as a profession, sales, I think, needs to start looking outside of our uh, own little sphere, because most of what people know about sales was built on theories that were based on 19th and 20th century management and uh, education theory, the tailors and skinners of this world. Um, and we've had 50 years of Jack Welch and Milton Friedman um, yep. telling us that greed is good um, and dehumanizing. And what's happened is we've overemphasized finance, we've overemphasized IT, and we've overemphasized data, and we've ignored the human side. Uh, I was on a call just before uh, we uh, started speaking with a couple of my friends, and we're looking at the private equity market. And we're trying to identify what the real problem is in the PE market. Uh, beyond their business model being um, a large Ponzi scheme. And what's fascinating is that these guys have been working in the PE space for north of 30 years, and every single PE failure failed because of a failure to do good due diligence on the people and their processes, and what they inherited or what they bought was a bag of nails. The people were not able to do it, do the job, because they just hired for the wrong reasons. They hire people and they overemphasize the technical side because it's easy and it's measurable instead of the hard stuff that really matters. So 
what would you say to investors and to leaders about why they should look at things from a, through a different lens? Because there is so much more money to be made. So let's take one of the psychographics, awareness, right? When most people say awareness, what they really mean is how aware are you of how great and smart I am? Yeah. Right? If we look at the way sales guys typically operate, right? That is, that's the message, right? Let me tell you how smart our product is. Let me tell you how smart we are by extension, right? Essentially saying, you know how grateful you should be that I'm even sitting here talking to you, right? <laughs> when, a re when really awareness is your awareness of the other person and their situation, right? So Some people call this consultative selling. I just call it really, really good conversation. Yeah. One of the things that's so fascinating to me is that if you change the the example, the venue into something else, the truth just erupts out of that, right? So if you're on a date, first date, mm -hmm. and all you do is talk about yourself and how wonderful you are, the odds that you will have a second date with that person are effectively zero. Yeah. <laughs> right? And yet that is exactly what we do in marketing and sales all the time. Some people are better at kind of putting a thin veil over that and making it appear to be something other than what it is. But for the most part, most people in sales, most people in go-to-market are very cut and dried, process-driven individuals who don't have that awareness. I mean, marketers actually in B2B are the worst. Okay. <laughs> they don't talk to customers very much outside of, of uh, some very contrived focus groups. Yeah. You know, they it's it's their their knowledge is all arm's length. And then they're automating the living hell out of their approach to those people that they hardly know. Right. And I then mean, they deliver technical jargon that no one cares about, about products that no one wants. The thing that fascinates me is that they have failure rates where they consider 3% to be a gold standard in terms of conversion. Yep. And 1% is normal. That's a 99 to 97% failure rate. Why are we not asking questions like, is there a better way? How do we flip the um, the numbers so that we have a 97% conversion rate? The non-linearity of life is what really prevents that kind of improvement. Because what that really means is that you have successfully negated free will. Again, if you're getting that kind of conversion, that kind of 97%. I mean, well, let's, let's talk about Major League Baseball, right? You are a badass baseball player in Major League Baseball if you have a batting average in the 330s. And if you're Which up means, 100, that means that you, you hit the ball one out of three times. Okay, cool. 
with data like you have, I'm thinking, I was um, coaching somebody last week and they were having this roaring debate between the CFO and the CMO because they had won or they'd filled the pipeline and they'd had their best quarter ever in terms of pipeline and their worst quarter for two years in terms of conversions. And the obvious question is, well, how many of the people that we attracted shouldn't we have attracted? And yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, a lot. It's, <laughs> it's actually the number one problem in terms of, of the magnitude of its impact. Too many people look at, they, they converge two very different ideas the total addressable market and the ICP, right? And one is a, an extremely small fraction of the other. And so getting your ICP right is huge. Yeah. It's huge, you know? Um, and so if you want, I mean, there's, there's, there's kind of like two different ways to get to a very high batting average, right? And one of them is to decrease your total number of at-bats, right? And an at-bat is for the English? The number of, in the context of sales, it would be how many people you talk to. Right, okay. So those are effective conversations. Yeah, I mean, you basically yes. only talk to people that you have that, where they are predisposed in many ways to want to buy from you. I see this problem where because the organization is not aligned, each department does its best to meet its quota. And a, a great example is where you're recruiting partners and you're hitting all of your recruitment targets on recruitment, but you're not activating 50, 60, 70% of them. And it costs you 14 grand to recruit one. But that's a hidden cost. It doesn't appear on a balance sheet, but because of the amount of time, effort, money, marketing spend, blah, 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 that hidden oh, cost. cost. Right. And we, we see this all the time with uh, companies fixated on new business instead of expansion sales. So talk to me about how the psychographics can help us generate expansion sales, because the bank SaaS study showed that in SaaS, new business generated 18%, upsells 170 and expansion 1150%. So CFOs, open your ears. This is where confidence and trust in particular tell the tale. It creates a flywheel with many, many positive ramifications to it. Not only are you driving greater share of wallet with customer X, right? But the reason why they are doing that in the first place is because they have had a really great experience. So what does that mean? They're also substantially more likely to refer you to someone else whether you ask them to or not. Data from the Referral Institute, which was a quarter of a million SMEs they got the data from, said that a referral will close one in six instead of one in 20. The average order value will be two and a half times larger than a cold. They will repeat order three times more frequently and refer four times more often. And um, if you do not have a way of systematizing your referral engine, you're leaving a vast amount of money on the table and you're creating an additional tariff that needs to be generated cold. And it's 12 to 21 times more expensive nowadays to generate new business than sell to an existing. And then we haven't even talked yet <laughs> about the costs associated with churn, right? 
So churn is more than just anti-retention, right? <laughs> churn not only takes revenue out of the pot, makes it a lot harder to amortize the acquisition costs for that customer, but it is fundamentally damaging to your brand. And the market makes it and, harder to sell. Well, and not only that, but you get a double whammy because they're going to buy from a competitor. That's correct. And that money goes out of your pocket for the next two, three, four, five, 10, 15, 20 years if you're doing a good job. Yep. It's insane. No, it, it is. It is absolutely insane. And one of the things that, that does not get the attention that it should get, largely because people are impatient and they don't like things with time lag attached to them, is the whole idea of lifetime value. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> this, is a, this is, again, this is, a, this is a variation on the idea of compounding. Yeah. Right? And so, particularly in SaaS, when you are in a really good place, you have, with a customer, you have created an annuity. That's really what it is for you as the, as the vendor. And so the cost of losing that annuity, that, that not free, but relatively unburdened cash flow, it is huge. This is why I'm really of the view that we need to rethink sales as a whole. Uh, in fact, uh, a bunch of us are getting together to try and create a customer-centric manifesto where customers sign up to a particular charter and they agree to behave in a particular way in return for which salespeople turn up and they're transparent and they're honest and they behave like human beings. I don't believe for a second it's going to get a lot of traction, uh, but what I want to do is start the debate because um, sure. we only need a tiny fraction to take up the mantle and they will shine. I mean, I, I, I'm already seeing it with my clients. I mean, I've got a client who's in a really, really competitive sec, uh, sp uh, space in FMCG, selling into FMCG, manufactured goods. Um, and uh, they haven't had a new product in eight years. And he's um, at growing at 28% per annum, while the rest of the market is struggling to grow at 3%. Because they're doing it the right way. They're looking after the I think that, I think that one, I think this is awesome. I think one of the things that you that, that needs to address is people in general, but sales guys, really good sales guys in particular, love the feeling that they are master of the universe. They love the idea of the heroic sales guy, right? They love, they, they, don't, they almost like don't want a good ICP that makes it easier for them because that takes away the challenge. They want to be able to show that again and again and again, they overcome this customer who was not gonna buy, right? And I think that, that there's, a, there's a narcissism in that, right, that is really problematic. And it creates a dependency if you're a certain kind of CEO, and, you find yourself relying on those heroic sales guys. Yeah, and then they end up holding you to ransom because you've created the conditions for them to do that. But Mark, tell me this. Um, I look at 
the way we recruit. Historically, we've recruited individual contributors who tend to be quite selfish, lone wolves. They're very good at getting the job done. The problem is that buyers bloody hate that. What they want is someone who actually understands them, their industry, and brings them insight, uh, challenges their thinking, helps facilitate the right decision, doesn't put them under pressure and behaves like a decent human being and never, ever puts their selfish self-interest before the customer's self-interest. And they work as partners with the customer. And when you behave like that, you end up getting customers who stay for a very long time. When you prospect, you turn up with the intent of making a transaction happen or am I going to find a customer who's going to be a customer for 20, 25, 30 years? It's a very, how you show up matters. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, though, that one of the things that I would take us back to briefly that really facilitates that is the ICP. Yeah. And understanding the buyer's journey and making damn sure that what you're not doing is trying to overlay your playbook um, dogma into where the buyer is not ready to buy. That's right. Because if you are trying to, to, if you're presenting otherwise really good, well-intentioned salespeople with an ICP for which, and they're relying on this success and this ICP for their personal well-being. Yeah. If it's too hard, they will either do one of two things. They will <laughs> either start to cheat right? Or they will leave. Yeah. Both of which are very expensive. Very expensive. And undesirable. Again, you know, if, if anyone wants to get hold of a calculator for the cost of a bad hire in enterprise, you're lucky to get away with 35 times salary. That, yeah. That's the low end. That's when this the angels are smiling. This is actually a very extensible idea because then it goes, takes you back to the ICP again, right? If you engage with a customer that isn't right for your company, it can be incredibly costly to you to the point where you may wish that they were gone. Yeah. Right? And so that is, that is the, you know, Getting these things, making the right choices is, is a really simplistic way of putting it, is, is key. <laughs> it just is. I've yet to go into an organization where I ask this question. Think of the customers that you'd like to sack. And every one of them can think of customers they'd like to sack. Well, why did you sell to them in the first place? Well, we needed the revenue. Okay, right. right. Well, that wasn't a good enough reason for you to then end up buying a headache. It's like, it's like in recruitment. You hire the wrong person. You've just created a downstream management problem. Absolutely. The same thing. That's one of the reasons why we have, we have it totally excluded venture capital from proof is on the investor side, right? I mean, we, we, I guarantee you we have rejected four or five times the amount of investment that we've accepted over the years. And have there been moments when I said to myself, wow, I really, you know, would love to have some of that money now? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, you, you know, that's totally true. But I've only had one investor that, that was not a good situation. 
but boy, you know what? It really, it was, it was such a bad situation that we found other investors, other shareholders uh, to buy him out. Better no breath than bad breath. And you know the, the the difference between good money and bad money of as often is not obvious, and this is why if any founders are listening, make bloody sure you do your due diligence and find out what uh, actually drives the investors and whether their values are aligned. Because if they're not, you're just going to spend your life basically giving away your company and having a miserable experience. I totally agree. You know, uh, it's one of the reasons. So we went with family offices. Yeah. And they are certainly high accountability people, but they are also very into the idea of creating a sustainable business. And when you have that kind of alignment on something so structural as that, right, you can do great things. But if you are having to artificially in some sort of contrived way create a hockey stick so that then you can sell it fast enough before everyone all the customers start to attrit there's fundamental issues there right well that, that's why 90 percent of the value in the tech markets just crashed and it's disappeared because it was never there they were selling to each other and when that collapsed there's nothing left So uh, again, I think what's going to be really interesting over the next couple of years is how more mainstream businesses start to adopt technology. And the ones that really get it are going to start screeching ahead. You you look at the tech stack that people can build now. You can have one rep speaking to six people on your list every hour with a tailored, hyper-personalized hypothesis. And Two hours of uh, prospecting a week is probably enough for most threats. Done well. But what they then do is they focus on the medium term and multi-threading, and um, they work on a small number of accounts and go deep and wide. And it's all about building consistent value over time so that they know that you're credible and reliable. Earn intimate moments uh, and shared confidences by demonstrating you have low self-orientation It's not non-existent, but you're willing to wait to get your reward and make sure you're doing everything you possibly can to eliminate uncertainty because that lowers perceived risk. That's our job. That's right. And we spend so much of our time faffing around trying to convince and uh, cajole and bully and brutalize and um, pressurize people. Why are we wasting all of that energy when all it does is create resistance in the buyer's brain? That's right. Okay, um, rant over. Um, okay, what would you recommend people read, watch, or listen to uh, to get a better sense of understanding of why these things matter? You know, uh, um, a really great book, mainly because it's written for the layperson, um, but it, it's still it's not oversimplified. The head of data uh, analytics for Dell is a guy named Bill Schmarzo. He's a PhD. He is his nickname throughout the industry is the dean of big data. So that should tell you something. He's written a lot of books, but the most recent one is all about the economics of data. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah. And he talks a lot. He's a good friend of mine. 
he's he's uh, part of proof as an advisor. Uh, he and I kind of cross pollinate ideas a lot. Um, he, he really gets to the heart of how one should think, and you, and he talks about it in terms of th- you thinking like a data scientist, but he doesn't mean becoming. Yeah. He means, hey, know what's really important, right? No, have a logic framework through which you can evaluate situations, problems, challenges that are always going to be multivariable and time lagged. So that's just life. And so, so this, his book is The Economics of Data Analytics and Digital Transformation. That one? That is correct. Yeah. Lovely. Okay. So we'll add that to the show notes for um, folks who want to read it. Okay. He would actually make a great podcast. I would love to have him on. And I I think um, people need to really understand what they're dealing with because most people, they're wasting the opportunity. And, uh, you know, this could be the difference between growing and surviving or not. Because as we go into the uh, deeper recession, and I reckon personally, from you know the indicators, I think we're going into a much, much deeper recession, and then it's going to get significantly worse after a little glimmer of hope. And people will be tricked by the fact that it looks like it's recovering and everything will start uh, come to a head. We've got the elections in the US and over here next year, and I imagine the level of disruption that that's going to create because of the internet and all the bad actors that's going to have a massive impact on the economy. Yeah, you're going to see because of AI, the misuse of AI, yeah. right? You're going to see all kinds of spurious videos and audio sequences, yeah. right? Where people are saying things they never actually said. And, yeah. um, you know, you brought up the Spanish Civil War as an entree into World War II. Yeah. Um, and the situation in Ukraine is is very much of that type of thing. Yeah. You know, when we when we model geopolitical factors, they are by far the biggest swings. Like what what happens as a result of a range of possibilities just on Ukraine? Yeah has a really significant larger impact, changes the story arc on a whole bunch of other things very dramatically. Yeah. Within a range of options, right? But the but that that spectrum of options is very disparate. Absolutely. And the level of complexity that it represents as well means that it's harder to make good decisions. I interviewed an old um, student of mine, actually, a guy called Klisman Marathi, and he's got a company called Pareto Economics. Um, They produce the Global Power Index, and it looks at the uh, regional power based on economics, innovation, population, finance, and so on, and the ability of a country to exercise power within its sphere. And what's really interesting is the uh, economics uh, and how what it looks like uh, in terms of the West and the US and the uh, shift that family offices are making out of our economies into emerging markets. 
what's going to be really interesting is how you know, Africa just leapfrogs the technological barriers of copper and everything else. I mean, you know, um, what's it, uh, Nairobi market, you can buy a pair of sandals on your phone. They've been using cryptocurrency, for want of a better word, for years. Yeah, there's actually a great story that illustrates that point. So after the fall of the Soviet Union, the obviously the former Warsaw Pact countries were cast adrift, right? Yeah. Poland had, you know, essentially a Stalinist telcos network that was in no way, this is uh, 89, 90, right? In no way, you know, substantive for what was coming. And at that same moment in time, AT&T, who had the first national cellular network, was looking for a lighthouse account. And they found each other. And so Poland was actually the first in the world. And it was a catapult. They just catapulted forward, right? They had the most sophisticated telco for probably the ensuing decade or more where everyone else caught up. And that is the way, that's the way it operates. And that's exactly what you're talking about in Africa. What we have to be aware of is that innovation doesn't just happen in dribbles. And what happens is you've got the dribble, 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 and then suddenly. I think non-linearity in action right there. That is non-linear. Exactly. And one of the big challenges is that uh, because people are not spending time in reflection, they're missing the opportunities. I mean, uh, most of my life is spent working with my clients to find the unmet need, the unidentified demand, where there's no competition. They can go in and then they can get a foothold and then they can pivot and start uh, cross-selling and upselling. And what's really interesting is it's very easy to find this stuff because no one else is doing it. Almost no one spends time in reflection. They don't do journals. They don't spend time reflecting on their difficult issues. They just keep churning away and they think more is better. Work harder. As the recession hit earlier on in the year, uh, what we found was more and more managers just increased the number of dials. And then they increased the number of uh, spam messages that were going out, which were then being blocked. And it's just this arms race to just be noisier and uh, in, among the deafening noise. So as a final thought, what, what advice would you give to people in order to be able to cut through that noise and create genuine connection and awareness instead of this you know, facile pretense? Before you go external with it, you have to create a business, a platform that is itself sustainable. Because that's what gives you, for lack of a better way of putting it, the freedom to act as you just outlined, right? If you are constantly, if you are overcommitted, overstressed, non-sustainable, right? You will become expedient in order to survive. And, uh, and so if your next breath of oxygen is dependent on you being expedient. Yeah. You will be expedient. And so you have to create a situation where that does not exist. Yeah. So that that would be my that would be my big one, but I also think equally significant is that 
you have to make a decision whether you, and it's, it's not about abandoning the one and embracing the other in some sort of binary sense, right? But you have to decide how much do you really care about and love other people, hmm. right? And what are you willing to give up for yourself in order to live with other people in the right way? This is a, this is a moral, ethical, even spiritual construct, right? Hmm. But more than, it, more than just a philosophy, it is actually a choice. It is. Right? When you choose to do things that you know are uh, not in the interest of your customer, it is a conscious choice. Even if you feel like you're being pressured to do it, you've made the decision. You can't say, my boss made me do it. You chose to do it. And it's very easy for someone at the latter end of their career who uh, doesn't have a mortgage to pay anymore uh, to say these things. But I think you're known by your actions. You're known by the, uh, the promises you keep, not the ones that you make. And I think it's really important that people in sales behave with genuine integrity and nobility. I think it should be the most noble act that we perform in business. It's an act of service. It's not an act of self-service. No, you're right. I mean, I think that one of the most challenging parts for, in that respect, for salespeople is that it is also sort of like the relationship between a waiter in a restaurant and the kitchen. Right. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I think that, that uh, you know, if the sales guy is writing checks that he or she knows the company's products can't cash that's a problem yeah right but equally is hey i'm i'm honestly representing something that ultimately my kitchen can't deliver mm -hmm. right that is that's also a so this is where you know we we talk about over and over again the fact that everything is multivariable and among other things, that means there is not a solution, a silver bullet solution for anything, right? They're wicked problems, and they need multiple solutions enacted in parallel and in sequence. And you have to review what you tried, because whatever you try first doesn't work, and whatever solution you end up with is imperfect. That's right. That's right. Everything is in transformation, you know, one of the things I find so interesting is we talk about business transformation, but as, as some sort of discrete project, as though business is not, is somehow stable. Business is not stable. I mean, you show, show me a business that's stable. If it's large enough, right, if it has enough mass relative to the marketplace, it might appear on the outside to be stable. But it's not. I mean, I've worked in very large companies that were not stable. Yeah. Okay. Look, Mark, we've come to time. I've been fascinated by this conversation. I'd love to have you back. Feel the same way. It's been terrific. Wonderful. Okay. Well, t tell me this. You, you've got a golden ticket, and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Mark, age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you whisper in his ear that he'd have probably have ignored but would have been valuable? Oh, for me, that's easy. When I was that age, I was as smart as I am today, 
but significantly more narcissistic <laughs> and, and amoral. Yeah. Right. And so for me, I walked away from all of that um, about 15, 20 years ago. But it was, you know, one of the things that I have learned about that from working with analytics for so long is that you learn paradoxical things. <laughs> and one of them is that you are really a very small piece yeah. of anything. Yeah. Right? And yet you're also very, very, very important. Right. And that is a, there's a humility that you learn. I mean, like for me, really, the last vestiges of my narcissism were totally destroyed <laughs> by my exposure to analytics. Right. You know, because you see the world, it's probabilistic stuff, but you see the world as, as it really is, pretty much. And you're like, wow, you know, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm important. What I do is important. I can make a difference, right? But man, there's so much else going on. Well, in life and in sales, there are so many paradoxes. In sales, you cannot convince anyone to buy anything ever. They have to convince themselves. So our job is not to convince. It's to create the conditions so that they can work it out. If you want to get trust, you have to give trust. If you want to get confidences, you have to give confidences. If you want to, other people to be vulnerable, you have to be vulnerable first. Now, none of that plays into the MO of a classic, traditional uh, personal sales leader, um, because they are typically individual contributors, lone wolves, selfish, um, self-orientated, results-orientated, commission-orientated but I don't know any salespeople, apart from the ones I would not want to hire, who are driven by money. Money is a benchmark uh, of how well they are serving their customers. And after they make 70 to 100 grand, they don't need any more. They're not accumulating it because they need it. It's just a, a measure. Yeah, uh, it's a score. What they're more interested in is doing important and meaningful work with interesting people um, and feel like they're making a difference and feel like people give a damn about them and care enough about their development to want them to progress. You know, these are the things that actually we should be creating in companies and uh, because they're hard and they're not easily measurable, we don't do them. And th that, to me, is just such a shame and a waste because the human cost is obscene. Yeah, I agree. The burnout. I agree. I think the other, the third reason why uh, it gets ignored so much is the time lag. Yeah. I mean, the, the easy analogy is it's you can clear cut a forest in a day. Mm. It's going to take you 20 years to regrow it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's a painful thing. And, and, yeah. and they don't like that because by the, you know, a CEO, a lot of CEOs or CFOs are going to say, man, by the time that matures, I won't even be here. Right. And so now you're back to that age old statement, right? That the true test of us as individuals and societies is the extent to which we will invest in things that will never profit us. Yes, absolutely. And again, uh, uh, we, we do need to wrap up, but the total lack of uh, dialogue around ethics and values. 
in organizations is shocking. They may have a, a mission statement and they may publish their values, but if they don't live them, if they don't recruit to them, if they don't manage to them, if they don't make decisions based on them, then they're not values. They're just lip service. And this again, you know, if, if you type in hashtag sales ethics onto LinkedIn, there are two articles, both written by me, bemoaning the fact that we never talk about sales ethics. There's nothing on there. This is where actually, I mean, and I'm not saying that giving a good return to your investors is important, but the whole message around the prioritization of shareholder value above all things is wrong. I don't know a single employee who goes to work to make their already wealthy shareholders wealthier. No. The people who directly report to those shareholders, whose jobs are dependent on those shareholders and what they think of them, all the two, right? And that's why we need to really understand the true job to be done. When you, if you're part of a private equity portfolio, the real job to be done is helping them raise the next fund by having good valuation numbers. And when you understand that, then all the crazy cockamamie decisions and hiring that they do makes sense. Mark, thank you. Um, what sort of customers are you best at serving? Describe your ICP to me. So we, we uh, it, the math is the same for any company in the industry. I would say that our ICP today is driven primarily around how badly do you really want to know the truth about what works, what doesn't work, be able to remove waste on a rolling, ongoing basis to optimize and re-optimize This is just like running an investment portfolio. It's just like running your 401k, right? So the biggest question that we get to is, do you really want to know? Because they can buy the tool and run it and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of times, you know, we'll see situations where they'll ignore what the tool is saying to them, what the analytics are saying to them because it doesn't square with what they believe. So like one of the questions that I asked is not, not political at all, right? One of the questions that I, I ask customers is, how do you feel about the science that's underneath climate change? Okay. And the real, the, what I'm really getting at there is How much of your decisions are based on what you believe versus what the the dent of information might suggest, right? And if, because if someone is very belief-centric, as we've seen in a political context, both ways, right? You can present all kinds of facts to them and it won't matter. I'm listening, to, I'm listening to a book on um, how to handle psychopaths, basically, at work. And there's a lay test where Donald Trump scored 171, Hillary Clinton uh, 169, and Adolf Hitler 149. <laughs> so uh, it, it gives you an indication of just how far, how bad things have got. Okay, how can people get a hold of you? Probably the best way to reach me is on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active there. You can send me a PM. You can engage with me below any of my posts. And 
I will PM you if you ask me to. I, you know, I don't bug people or anything like that. I mean, if you want to talk to me, just let me know and I will talk to you. But the other option definitely would be Slack, you know, something like that. Okay. E- email is the worst today. I mean, in that sense, so, I'm... For those of you... For those of you in sales, listen to what he's about to say, okay? Email is not going to get you through to the senior people if you're doing the standard email that most of you do. They're shit. Don't do them. They just don't get through. It's a waste of everybody's time. Sorry. 100%. And actually, right behind it is all of the private message, sales messages through LinkedIn. I mean, I just don't look at them. You know, I just don't. And part of me, I'm sure I'm missing out occasionally on something that's pretty cool, but I don't want to encourage that kind of spammy behavior at all. And so I don't reward it at all. Fair enough. Are you hiring at the moment? Yes. What are you looking for? Always looking for really good sales guys. Okay. Salespeople. Just in the US or? No, uh, both both sides of the pond. Cool. Always looking for great technology players, right? People who don't just code on order, but but actually think. Okay. Cool. Okay. So my recommendation: give Mark a cold call, but do a proper job. Do the research. Find out what his pain is. What his then come up with a good hypothesis. He'll listen. If you do a shit job, he'll ignore you. Fair? Yeah, pretty much. Excellent. Good. Okay. I love doing my Yanta bit. Basically, that's it. And thank you ever so much. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. So this is Marcus Cappy signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Give me a four-star review, please, because I need to bring the uh, rating down from five to 4.2, because apparently that gets you more uh, traction, according to Todd. In the meantime, if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at lastsightandlast.com. Like I said, email, not my favorite channel, but I will look at it about two in the morning when my bladder, because I'm old, uh, kicks in. And there will be a link if you want to book a 15-minute coaching call with me where we will talk about what you want your career to give you in life. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.